Well, my Bible is open to uh, Romans 7. If you have a prayer slip or visitor's slip, we'd like to collect those now. Thank you for sharing those with us. Well, we're back. We're back to Romans after uh, a significant break. The last time we studied in Romans was way, way back in November. And uh, we're going to re-enter right now. We return this this morning to this wonderful and powerful letter of the Apostle Paul to the Romans. And the impact of this letter really is incalculable as it continues as a clarion call, a loud and clear call on what the gospel is. And so Romans is written to make clear how sinful human beings are made right with the true and living God. And it's not the way you would think living in this world where you get promoted if you do well Uh, You keep the rules, usually you can stay in the game. But God's uh, salvation is not by works of righteousness, which we have done. This is counterintuitive. It's not by working hard. I referenced the spelling bee in prayer just a moment ago. It's not like our idea about the spelling bee. You can stay in the Christian life as long as you keep spelling the words right. That's not it at all. Um that every believer struggles with sin. And so I'm calling this, this morning's message the struggle we all know. And yet not wanting to give over to a, a license to sin or a lackadaisical spirit. What's the use for even trying? No, we're, commend, we're com- commanded and commended in Scripture to, to, to fight sin and to uh, do war with it within our, our being. And yet to know that the grace of God is what receives us and comforts us. The impact of this letter, again, is far-reaching. And the the reason we work systematically through Bible books is because, for a number of reasons, but it it really, it exposes the people of God to to the full breadth of, of the Scripture. Not only that, it sets the agenda for our worship. And it exposes God's people to passages they might not otherwise see. It strengthens our faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. It instructs us in the paths of righteousness. It is my hope as we come together that the Lord would be pleased to apply the truth in hundreds of ways in our gathering. It gives us wisdom for the living of these days. Much preaching, however, is focused on felt needs, which instead of allowing a passage of scripture or a book of the Bible to guide the agenda of the worship of the church, it becomes the pastor's thoughts on what's most important based upon what he interprets to be felt needs in the congregation. I'll just be honest with you. I don't even know what my needs are. So I don't even claim to know what yours are. Certainly when grief is overwhelming or there's a a great sorrow in the body or uh, those are obvious. But I think for the weekend, week out gathering of the church, we need to be, be reminded of what God's word says about everything. I was reading in a book this week by Jim Shaddix, who is one of our conference speakers our keynote speaker for the pastor's conference at the end of February. He wrote in his book, The Passion Driven Sermon. He shared an experience about being at this preaching conference in London 
where all the preachers and teachers uh, around the world gathered for uh, a major conference. And, and the, the purpose of the conference was uh, to talk about the relevance in preaching, which many in our culture don't see any relevance at all to preaching. It's, it's a bygone uh, practice. And so they were addressing at this conference, how do we preach to contemporary culture so that we are sure to connect? Uh, a worthy subject, but during the closing session, the speaker, a popular minister from England, related a personal story about raising his teenage sons, and he described a typical Sunday morning, which we all know in some measure, that was hard. And they had a difficult morning getting ready for church and a difficult morning riding in the car to church, and then they get out and try to assimilate into the body with some measure of joy, which is hard to do. So he went on to describe this pastor's sermon that he heard on that troubled morning and sarcastically said the preacher waxed eloquent about all the details of this particular psalm. And he told us about the psalm and he proclaimed this psalm of how to have an intimate relationship with God. And he went on to confess that he thought to himself as he left the service, now this is the preacher preaching to all of these preachers at this major conference, kind of belittling the pastor for being faithful to preach and teach a psalm. This preacher went on to confess that he thought to himself as he left the service, well, pastor, thank you very much. If I ever need to know about that, I'll have the information. But today I needed to, you to tell me how to raise my boys. And you didn't do that. And a host of amens throughout the conference hall. And Shaddix thought on his flight home of the speaker's point. And his heart resonated with the need for preaching to be relevant. We all want that. But he struggled intensely with the idea that the driving force behind preaching is to answer all the questions people are asking. This struggle birthed a number of other questions in his mind. The first was a personal one. I wondered how I could have possibly answered the question that guy was asking had I been his pastor in one sermon about how to raise teenage boys. The second question grew out of the simple understanding of the preaching with which I was raised. Namely, when the preacher got up to speak, it was a thus saith the Lord kind of experience. The Bible was opened, it was taught, it was explained, it was applied, which is the example we find in Scripture itself. But quite frankly, there's not a lot of information in the Bible on how to raise teenage boys. Oh yeah, we could go train up, to, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. We could look at sections in, in Paul's letters to Ephesians and Colossians that give insight. But it's relatively safe to say that those weren't the kinds of answers that man was looking for. Like churchgoers everywhere, he was looking for specific and practical principles. But when you stop and think about it, the Bible really doesn't give us much information on that or other subjects that we may want. It gives us principles, and we are freely saying that it, it, it applies to every area of life. But is it really the pastor's job to give a bunch of how-to tips in the sermon? Shaddock said that his... Struggle gravitated to a third question. What is the role and responsibility of my, my pastor, my preacher? 
And his resolve was to come back to what does the Bible say and what is it calling me to do? And I was thinking about this section in Romans 7 and maybe someone might be tempted today to say, well, thanks for all that information on Romans 7. If I ever need it in the future, I'll think about it. But what I'm wanting us to see is that our relationship with God, our walk with Him, how we deal with the ebb and flow of life, how we grow in our faith, how we live our life, that's addressed in Romans 7. What do I do when devastation comes my way? What do I do when I'm discouraged? What, what's going to keep me from walking away from the living God to do my own thing? And I think we find the answers here in the book of Romans. We believe that the teaching and preaching of God's word brings light to us. And we, as we understand who God is and what he commands and what he's done for us in the person of his son, hope is given to us. We would do well to turn to the scripture and hear and believe what God has said. It is our greatest need. And if you know him and receive his word, he will guide you in the questions and the challenges you face in your life from raising teenage boys to managing your income to prioritizing your commitments and a host of other things God's word speaks to it all. So when we look at the book of Romans, we've been through seven chapters and I'm not gonna re-preach them this morning. But I just would hold up, Paul's major mission has been to clarify what the gospel is. How sinful humanity can be reconciled with God. And he does so with four pillars. One is God. There is a God who has spoken, who has created, and who is redeeming a people for himself. There is a humanity that he has created and all of us have fallen short, beginning in the Garden of Eden to this present day. We are not commandment keepers, we're commandment breakers. We all share that in common. In Adam, we all die. In Jesus Christ, we are all made alive, which leads us to Christ, which is the centerpiece of the gospel, that God sent his son, for God so loved the world that he sent his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ, the son of God came, and at the right time, he died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6 tells us. So what's our response to this good news? What's this response to what God has done? The response for men and women everywhere at any time is to turn from our sins and to believe on him. And that since we're justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this glorious gospel is presented in Romans and it's centered on God providing a righteousness that is outside of ourselves. So in opposition to the spelling bee, the righteousness we need to be right with God comes from outside of us. It's not something we work on. Have you heard someone say that in a conversation I have recently? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on myself. You know, I'm, I'm figuring it out. Well, salvation doesn't come based upon your knowledge. <laughs> salvation doesn't... Uh, come based upon your problem-solving skills. Salvation comes when you see the bankruptcy of your spiritual state and you turn from that and say, I need the righteousness that only Christ can give me. And you call upon him. 
And by faith, God declares you righteous. In the courtroom of heaven, God declares you righteous because of what Christ has done. This is good news for us, friends. This is the best news we could ever know and experience. And with that comes all the blessings of God, answered prayer, adoption into his forever family, the indwelling Holy Spirit, forgiveness, assurance, hope. All of these things come to us in Jesus Christ. So in Romans 7, Paul is addressing something, well, with all these wonderful benefits, if he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, we wouldn't have any problems, right? You know Jesus, you're going to ride the crest of the wave until you enter into heaven, but we know that's not true. Experientially, that's not true. There are valleys. Pick a, pick a figure from the Bible, and you will see them inevitably go down into valleys, What do we do when that's the case? Does that mean we're not saved? Our text today in Romans 7 describes the struggle, sometimes fierce struggle that every believer experiences in their walk with Jesus Christ. It is a struggle we all know. So let's dig in and see what we have this morning. I wanna kind of hold my thoughts on four things. The first would be this understanding we need to have as believers, the believer in the law. And the first part of Romans 7 deals with this. Paul refers to the law many times in Romans 7. In fact, he seems to be writing with great awareness that believers have many questions about the law. How do do I relate to the law? And by that, that would certainly refer to God's law given through Moses under the Old Covenant. That would include the Ten Commandments. But I think in Romans, it's a broader understanding of what the law is. And in fact, in the Gentile world, it even speaks to our conscience. We know things are not right. The way we relate to one another, there's a sense of justice within our conscience. Not a, not a pure justice, but there's a sense of when something's wrong, we say so. And uh, so with this idea of a law, it seems to be, he's writing with a great awareness that believers have many questions about this. Let's just say right up front, Jesus Christ never said a disparaging thing about the law. When we think about the law, the Ten Commandments, we should say with the psalmist, oh Lord, I love your law. But the thing about the law is that it will never make us right with God. It is not evil or wicked or to be discarded, but it will not reconcile us to God. And so he explains here in verses one through four, as he's writing to both Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church, and the Jews would boast about the law, that was part of their heritage. They would believe that they obeyed the law perfectly when they hadn't. And he explains that it it means, what it means to not be under the law, but under grace. And, and, and he gives this illustration of marriage in verses one through four. And when death comes in marriage, the covenant bond is not binding any longer. That's the idea. So the law that binds a lifetime commitment is no longer binding. When you come to know Jesus Christ, When a believer dies in Christ, the law is not binding any longer because Christ has obeyed the law perfectly and we have received his righteousness by faith. 
But does that mean we set it aside not to instruct us in how we live? May it never be. It should guide us. It should be a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. And we should long to live obediently. What we can never do in our own strength through the power of the new birth, we can, we can begin to obey in ways that are pleasing to God. And that our life is marked by His righteousness. So our natural inclination to law, the law is what? We chafe at it. We buck at it. We resist it. We want to cross over the line. We see that in the Garden of Eden. We see it to this day as we struggle with our own hearts. It's at, it is at, at the heart of what it means to be a sinner is to resist what God has said. And so this is the, even as Christians, this is the doctrine of indwelling sin. Even though we have experienced God's grace and forgiveness, the, the doctrine of indwelling sin is that we still battle with a sin nature. When will that go away? When we're saved to sin no more? <laughs> when we're in the presence of God? Oh, what a day that will be. But I, I just constantly have in my, my thoughts, what I don't want this world to think is that when we gather together, we're gathering as self-righteous people who are completely obedient in our life. We're not, are we? Shake your heads. We're not. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here in this text. So while sin remains, we need to realize it is deceitful, it blinds, it deceives. We see the sin of others, but we're blind to our own sin. And we see the speck in our brother's eye, but ignore the log in our own eye. Paul Tripp wrote uh, these insightful words, since each of us still has sin remaining in us, we will have pockets of spiritual blindness. We'll have things we can't see. Not me, you say. (laughs) No, I, I see it all. No, you don't. No, you don't. Tripp goes on to say, that is why so many Old Testament prophecies say that the Messiah would come to open blind eyes. That is why he is called the light. Physically blind people are always aware of their deficit and spend much of their lives learning to live with its limitations. But the Bible says that we can be spiritually blind and yet think that we see quite well. We even get offended when people act as if they see us better than we see ourselves. The law reveals, but the law cannot save you from sin, which is the whole point of Romans 7. Look with me secondly. Who's this conflicted man in Romans 7? Is Paul talking about a Christian or a non-Christian? This is the huge debate, and it is quite a debate among biblical studies. Look at Romans 7, 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Is, is, this, is he talking about Paul and his before Christ state, before he was saved? Or is he speaking as a believer? Is he describing true Christian experience? I think that's it. I think he's describing true Christian experience as an apostle, that he had these struggles. In the biblical studies world, 
I mentioned there was a, di- a disagreement. You know, what is he? I think he's describing Christian experience. Why would this bring hope to us today? I think many people deal with a hopelessness when they think about the claims of the gospel. I could never live that life. I could never live that life. It's not maybe that they're, they're, they're stumbling over the truth claims of Jesus Christ. They're quite compelling. The historical uh, support for the gospel is, is solid. I think people bail out on the call of the gospel because it's like I could never live that life. I could never do it. I could never live like you people. If they're look, looking at a group of Christians. And what we would want to say to them is what? We can't either. We can't live it either. Our hope is not in earning merit badges by our church achievements. Our hope will always be and only be in Jesus Christ, our Lord. John Piper said, we should not make peace with our sin, we should make war with our sin. So this isn't a a call to be lackadaisical with regard to it, but for us to rest in his grace. J.I. Packer, um, in one comment in, in, in an article he wrote, Paul is not telling us that the life of the wretched man, and he mentions that wretched man in verse 24, look at verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Packer weighs in and he says, Paul is not telling us that the life of the wretched man is as bad as it could be. Only that it's not as good as it should be. And that because the man delights in the law and longs to keep it perfectly, his continued inability to do so troubles him greatly. The wretched man is Paul himself, spontaneously voicing his distress at not being a better Christian than he is. And all we know of Paul's personality fits that perfectly. So this is... Quite a, quite a statement, and I believe that it, it speaks of, a, a, of Christian experience because of how Paul uses first name pronouns all through this section. I, me, my, he uses 40 times in verses 13 through 25. And he does so in the present tense, which indicates to me that he's referring to himself in the present. Paul refers to the law in a way only a believer could. He says, I don't call the law lacking. The law is not sinful. When Paul referred to the life he lived before Christ, it seems to be radically different. For instance, when he mentions in Philippians 3 that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had, he had quite a religious resume going. As to the law, he was blameless. If you were to ask, ask the rank-and-file Jewish person, hey, tell us about Saul of Tarsus. He's blameless. Oh, he's religious. Nobody can top his religiosity. And when Paul writes, you ought to read this, I'll let you look at it, Philippians 3, 1 through 14, he says, forgetting what's behind, meaning when I came to know Jesus Christ, All the religious trappings of my life became to me, and he says this, he says it, like a pile of manure. 
that I might gain Jesus Christ. And then he says, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, verse 10 of Philippians 3, that I might know him. And the power of his resurrection, having fellowship with his sufferings, being conformed into the image of his death. That was his life purpose and goal. When Paul refers to himself, he says in verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then he qualifies it, that is in my flesh. I have a sin nature, I have an indwelling sin nature. In my flesh dwells no good thing. But what good thing did dwell in Paul? The spirit of the living God. The spirit of the living Christ dwelt in him and every believer. So he's not boasting He's not confident in his achievements. He sounds like David in Psalm 51, doesn't he? Which we sang about, brokenhearted, meek, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, I was thinking about that. That sounds a lot like Peter and his denial of Christ. It says in the Gospels that the Lord, when Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus looked at Peter. Can you imagine that stare across the courtyard? He never forgot that. Because he had boasted. I'll never deny you. Three times you're going to deny me, Peter. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. I see a parallel here between Peter's failures And he had failures post-Pentecost too. After the Holy Spirit had come and filled Peter and had filled believers at Pentecost, he had failures afterwards. Paul confronted him to his face in Galatians because he had sided with the Pharisaical Jewish leaders who had come and were intermingling with the Gentiles. So I imagine there was a time where Peter was enjoying pork and shrimp. And then... The Jewish legalist showed up and he begins to slide on over and embrace the old life. And Paul confronted him to his face. Peter, the, the issue of the gospel's at stake here. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And so thirdly, the struggle we all know as we look at uh, 13 through 20 So what should our response be with this struggle? For we know the law is spiritual, verse 14 tells us. We know what God commands, that it is truth, but I'm of the flesh sold under sin. I have a sin nature. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So what should we do, believer, when we sin? What should we do when we feel like saying, oh, wretched woman, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? What should I do when I deal with this kind of conflict. I, I tell you, if you're, if you're leaning towards perfectionism, if you're leaning towards legalism, you might ratchet it down and become more judgmental of, of other people. You might just leave altogether. 
And both are a horrible response. When we do something that we're not supposed to do, when we do something that's disobedient to God, I believe this passage helps us to respond. So think about this with me as we come to a close. You do something that you regret. You say something that you regret. You know it's wrong. How do you respond to that? That's what this conflict's talking about. Let's follow Paul's example. Maybe we could begin by saying, oh Lord, I love your word. I'm not gonna debate with you about what's right and wrong. I receive it for what it is. I, I love your word. It is indeed a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Every Christian should believe that and think that. I acknowledge it, Lord, as I'm dealing with issues of my heart and things I know that have dishonored you. I love your word. Secondly, I hate what I just did. The whole idea of confessing our sins, the word is homologia, which means to say the same thing as. When I confess my sins, I'm saying the same thing about it that God's saying. And Lord, I'm saying that I hate what I just did. And I wanna turn from it. And I ask you to forgive me for it. And I wanna make it right. I don't wanna gloss over it. I wanna be true and a man, a woman of integrity. And I wanna follow through with it. I think that's what Paul's saying in verse 15. The, what I'm doing is the very thing I hate doing. And then finally, to ask the Lord to forgive you. Am I talking to someone this morning who you've navigated the ropes pretty well. You've got issues in your heart that are weighing you down, but nobody would ever know it. This inner struggle could very well be your life today. I'm playing the hypocrite, Pastor. I understand. Maybe it's a bad track record. Maybe it's a bad marriage. If you knew the state of our marriage, Pastor, you would be absolutely shocked. Maybe it's shame. Maybe it's condemnation. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's bad parenting. Maybe it's a bad work ethic. You've taken the name of Christ through the mud through your entire work career. You've got integrity breaches, regrets. All of us have regrets. I, I, I was really just taken by Jimmy um, Johnson who uh, shared on the Dan Patrick Show back in November. Uh, he was, of course, the coach of the University of Miami, coach Oklahoma State before that, University of Miami and the Dallas Cowboys. He won a national championship in the NCAA through Miami, and he won two Super Bowls back-to-back -back with the Dallas Cowboys. He had reached the height of the uh, coaching success. And in all of that coaching and in all of that football, he has two sons. He never watched one of his sons in any of their football games. And he spoke about the regret of that. And that he wrote this book really as an uh, attempt to apologize to his family. And we all have regrets, don't we? I wish I would have done that. Wish I would have said that. Wish I would have been there. 
What do we do when we are dealing with, I have failed in my roles, my responsibilities? I I look to the Apostle Paul here and I see a tremendous hope. What keeps one from drifting into hopelessness and just taking their life? That's what can happen when you, when you live in that and you replay it in your mind long enough. You lose all hope and all sense of reality. And we need to be reminded of the example of Paul and all of our circumstances and all of our mistakes. That it is Jesus Christ and his hope that he gives to us that we press on to walk in newness of life. Would you leave this worship service today with a heart to begin again? Would you say in this responding in faith time, oh Lord, how I love your word. It is true. My thoughts, my intentions, the intentions of my heart, that's not, that's not ultimately true. Your word is true. And John Newton, we often refer to him. What a life. And even though this former slave trader was saved by the grace of God and wrote the most popular hymn ever, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, I love what he said in the throes of his own sanctification. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I might be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm I'm not what I... I hope to be, I'm not what I once was, but by the grace of God, I am who I am. And I'm pressing on in obedience to him. I thought about that conference speaker I mentioned at the front end of this message, um, who wanted practical tips on how to raise his teenagers, how the message of Romans 7 would transform a bad morning. Picture leaving church and instead of mocking the preacher for being faithful to preach the Psalms, to call the family together (laughs) and say, we've got to begin again. We are followers of Jesus Christ and we did not enter to hear the word on that day as we should have. We are followers of him and we need to act like it and I need to lead the way by repenting and bringing in truth from the word and how it intersects life and live it together. What an encouragement for weary saints. More about that next week. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads as we come to the end of this service. It really is a a call of decision that this gospel of Jesus Christ is extended yet again to you this morning. If you've never received Jesus Christ, As your Lord and Savior, why would you need to do that? Well, because your sin has separated you from God and you need peace with God that only Christ can give and provide. And he did so on the cross. And the Bible presents his death as a substitutionary death. That means he died for the sins of all who would ever believe in him. And this morning that offer is given to you. This Savior who was crucified on Friday rose again on Sunday. He's alive forevermore. He appeared to over 500 people at one time and after 40 days with his disciples ascended into heaven and the Bible says he's coming again. But that's not a call to wait. That's a call to respond even now to this good news. 
It's an urgent message. It's the message you need most. It's the Savior you need most. Would you call unto him? Maybe you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, but you've delayed your baptism. As an act of obedience and in the first step of professing Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to be baptized. What keeps you from the waters? Step forward in obedience to him. Maybe because of past failures, regrets, mistakes, hurts, failures, You've kind of been in the penalty box in your own mind and heart. You need to be set free. For the wretched man that Paul described in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God for Jesus Christ. Come to him now. Call out to him now. Follow him now. Lord, may it be so in our lives and in this church for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If there are needs on your heart, you come this morning.